Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100% online, so you can access it from anywhere in the world. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whenever it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist with no additional cost. With BetterHelp, you, got, you get the same professionalism and quality you expect from in office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you, more scheduling flexibility, and at a more affordable price. Get 10% of your first month at betterhelp.com slash how to survive society. That's better com slash how to survive society. Hello, survivors. This is your girl, Abby Ayola Williams, and you're now listening to How to Survive Society. How to Survive Society is a weekly podcast that features survivors. These are people that have been through the ringers in life. They've been through hell and back, but they choose to stay positive. They choose to win. They choose to thrive and they choose to survive. So let's get right into it. Hello, survivors. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of How to Survive Society. Today, I have a very special guest. His name is Dr. Stuart Lynchman, and is he has a PhD. Um, we're going to talk about um, one of the things that he used to gain financial freedom. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of things, like his childhood and, and things like that, his books. So um, let's get right into it. So Dr. Stewart, how are you doing today? I'm great, Abby. How about yourself? I am good. I can't complain, you know. Can't complain at all. So, um, yes. So I was going to ask you about your childhood. Where did you grow up? Um, how were your parents? You know, how were you as a person? Um, things like that. I grew up in Washington, D.C., which um, I think it was Abraham Lincoln who said it was a swamp. Um, very hot and humid in the summer, 100 degrees, 100% humidity is not very pleasant. But I had a, a problem. I was born with Alzheimer's, which means I couldn't connect with people, couldn't connect with my parents, couldn't connect with my brother, couldn't connect with anybody, I had no friends, very lonesome time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to invent my way to get along with the world, which is a strange thing to say, but nothing that was natural for other people was natural for me. Um, Luckily, uh, Alzheimer's 
has a good side and a bad side. The bad side is what I've described. The good side is that it gives you a kind of a brilliance of seeing things that other people don't see in terms of logic, in terms of way to do things, and so forth. So mm-hmm. I intuitively use that to invent my way out of the isolation of my Alzheimer's. Um, it eventually uh, grew to the point where, although I felt totally dumb in school, I had no friends, I couldn't connect to the teachers, and so on. But somehow I got into my tea. I I did it because something told me the way to rack up the uh, SAT exams was to study vocabulary so I could really understand the subtleties of the questions. And it worked. I got almost a perfect perfect scores. Uh, it was interesting. In those days, I don't know if they do it now, but in those days, the top schools had alumni that interviewed you. Oh. And uh, the MIT guy liked me because I could see things and we could talk about arcane things. And so he gave me a thumbs up. My brother was at Harvard, and <laughs> that was a disaster when I had that uh, <laughs> interview. Um, I applied there, and they accepted me, but said I had to uh, live off campus, which was basically, no, we don't want you here. So I got into Yale and a few other places. Um, Went to MIT for only one reason. It was close to my brother. And my brother was the only person I knew in the world, really. Um, He was a very bright guy, um, a brilliant astronomer, won national science fairs and so on. And I always looked up to him. So... um, The thing I remember best about MIT is that the uh, catalog of courses totally confused me when I first saw it. Mm -hmm. Um, It it was um, nothing like anything I'd encountered. And... um, I guess I was being kind of karmically challenged. Uh, I really didn't feel like I had a good memory. So I asked my advisor if I could put off the required chemistry course for a year. And he said, sure, no problem. He signed off on it. And then two weeks before finals of the first semester, I got called into the office of the dean of students. He said, Lickman, you haven't been doing the work in chemistry. I said, but I have. Then I showed him what my advisor had signed, and he said, he didn't have the right to do that. You don't get a C in chemistry, you're out. 
Hmm. Wasn't a really friendly place. So um, I searched around. I um, got my roommate to get me a date with somebody at Boston University who was a whiz at chemistry. And um, she kind of taught me chemistry in two weeks, and I got a C plus. Ah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> interesting journey. Um, yes, definitely. <laughs> so um, do you only have your brother, or do you have a sister also? No, just my brother. Just your brother. Dad. Um, he, um, he had a strange experience. He never told me what happened, but he won a fellowship to do some work in his at an observatory out in Colorado. And I suspect he had a relationship with a girl that turned sour. Anyway, he became suicidal and oh. uh, my parents were in great denial about it, so I had to take care of him. By that time, as a child bride, I'd married the woman who taught me uh, chemistry. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> it, uh, it was humorous. She didn't know how to cook. So <laughs> she, wow. We moved into an apartment and. Um, she quotes cooked dinner. It was terrible. Um, we threw it out the window of the kitchen. <laughs> Turns out that we had some squirrels that really liked her the food. food. <laughs> so every time she made something terrible, we throw it out there. The squirrels <laughs> could run anywhere and be very happy. <laughs> wow, that that's actually funny. <laughs> So does she know how to cook now, or she still doesn't know how to cook? <laughs> no, she knows how to cook, but uh, <laughs> and we're still friends, but we don't see each other very often. We're divorced. We oh, divorced. okay. Uh, it came about, um, we were not doing well at all. And this is back in the 60s, early okay. 60s. And... The thing there was women thought, it seemed, that if the marriage wasn't working, you should have kids. Mm. So, um, how can I put it? Unexpectedly, she became pregnant. Um, and I had just started my master's work at MIT. I had to drop out, get a job. Uh, I was freaked by the whole thing, mm. but I was certainly not ready for parenthood. Yeah. And uh, it was an interesting experience. We'd gotten a, an apartment in Brookline, Mass., which was across the river from MIT. And during the summer, it was very nice. During the winter, I understood why we got such a good price. The heat worked two days out of three, and 
the windows would fall out if we didn't mm-hmm. to put them in with tape and so on. Oh my goodness! And yeah. this was happening during the winter time. Yeah, and it gets kind of cold in in Massachusetts. I can tell you. Um, so we got very adroit at taping windows. We had a cat named Fang who had six toes on each paw and he could climb up the wallpaper. But he got cold at night, so he'd look for a warm place to sleep and that was my face. (laughs) Oh my, those are funny days. (laughs) After the um, unfortunate incident with my advisor the first year, I decided I needed to get a new advisor. And so I put together specifications intuitively, and I found him. His name was Dr. Dwight Bowman. Interesting guy. He was kind of wacko like me. He invented optical character recognition, artificial intelligence, gizmos that take printed material like a book and convert it to computer codes. So it's called them OCR, optical character recognition, or reading machines. And those are really early days. Um, I helped him. He didn't have a thesis yet. Um, His doctor thesis done, which was on OCR, and I helped him with masks made out of punch cards compared with data in punch cards. That was about the state of computers at that point. They took three rooms and had only punch card interface or printer interface. Um, I became involved there with artificial intelligence because since I didn't understand what's going on. I thought maybe there was something there for me. They didn't call that artificial intelligence in those days. In fact, I was one of the pioneers. And um, one day I got this bright thought during second year, which was, you know, all the different areas of engineering, aeronautical, nuclear, mechanical, electro, electrical, and so forth, are really the same except they have uh, emphasis in different areas where they excel. So I went to Dwight, my advisor, and said, I want to take courses in any of these engineering fields. He says, absolutely forbidden, absolutely forbidden. MIT written says, you can't do that. I said, well, can we do it anyway? He was an entrepreneur. I figured he might do it. He said, sure, as long as you don't make a fool of me. We had a, He was the first person that was really like, I would say, a parent to me. He, he and his wife, Mavis, didn't have kids. Uh, they were from North Dakota, very self-reliant. Um, and he took me under his wing. That was when 
venture capital was just starting. And he introduced me to the first venture capitalist in the world, um, an outfit called American Research and Development, mm-hmm. and to the inventors of the um, mini computer, which was mini compared to three run computers, but not too many by any other standards. And I got to into that entrepreneurial community. I met the guy who invented the fax machine as we knew it now. And Mm. a lot about his journey. So it was pretty clear that in the fog of viewing myself, I knew I was an entrepreneur. And... Yes, so that's that's how you became an executive entrepreneur, inventor, researcher, consultant, trainer, and coach. <laughs> wow, that's a lot of things. I like that. So, is that where you learned the cybernetic trans- transposition, also well, known as CT? That came a little bit later. Um, it started out this way: in every one of these, really precise systems, engineering systems, there was always something that screwed things up, and that was a human. So I said to Dwight, who knows how to model humans? And he said, well, you can try psychology and economics. So I did, and they didn't know anything about modeling humans. They modeled themselves. Um, I said to Dwight, I'm going to invent a system to model human <laughs> with this really uh, funny expression on his face. Go for it. Obviously, he thought I couldn't do it. It took about 14 years, actually, um, and the development of supercomputers to do it. But <clears throat> I did come up with a system. Uh, that I call Arantel, which is short for artificial intelligence. And um, I had clients, U.S. government, British government. I gathered clients all around the world um, to use this to understand markets and to understand technology and designed for it. I went to work for one person, a guy who invented, I think you might get a kick out of this, a pinhole detector. Pinhole detector? Yeah. (laughs) The, you know, tin cans, they used to be steel with a liner of tin. And the Food and Drug Administration mandated that you couldn't have a hole in that tin and steel mix that was more than a thousand of an inch in diameter. So this guy, his name was Winderman, invented a pinhole detector 
to detect these kind of holes in a six-foot-wide um, steel and uh, tin sandwich running down manufacturing line 60 miles an hour. And it worked okay. It was expensive. A competitor came out with one that cost only 60%. And given the limited market, that was life-threatening to Linderman's business. So Linderman was a patient. My father was a cardiologist. And he was really worried. He told my father about it because that was causing his heart to act up. And my father suggested uh, that maybe he might want to hire his son, an MIT grad, who had a grandchild that he really would have preferred to have living in Washington, D.C., so that's how I started out in the pinhole detector. I and another guy invented a much simpler way of doing the same thing, and Linderman resisted it to the point that one day I said to him, look, you're going to go out of business if you don't take our advice. So either you take our advice or I quit. He took the advice. It worked. As soon as he got his first series of orders, he fired me. At that point, I said, I don't ever want to work for somebody else. I saved this company, and he Mm -hmm. fired me. So um, my father had another patient, a very brilliant entrepreneur named Jerry Wallman. Jerry Wallman had come from abject poverty in Pennsylvania um, and he had gotten into real estate in Washington, D.C. And because he had a fantastic personality connecting with people, he was able to put together, with my father's help, put together syndicates of doctors and he built a lot of apartments in Washington, D.C. He also got all of the loving, caring, and nurturing from my father that I desperately wanted and my father couldn't give me because he just couldn't figure out me. He couldn't connect with me. So after Linderman fired me, I got a job with Jerry. And um, what kind of job? He said, well, you know, engineering. So he had bought a piece of ground that was a 30-degree downslope. And under the surface, it had clay, a layer of clay, and a um, stream, another layer of clay. That meant, I don't know whether you know what, Clay is like when you put water, it's kind of like um, very slippery. 
So every day the hill would slide three inches down toward the creek at the bottom. And he said, you you build this foundation for this. So I built the foundation. And I was really surprised. None of them slid. They all stayed in place. The guy who was putting in the sewer was going crazy because the rest of the hill would go slide down into the creek where he's putting the sewer, sewer lines, and move the sewer lines. But my didn't move anywhere. I said, hey, maybe I should get into this on my own. Jerry made enough money to buy the Philadelphia Eagles. He built it to hunt John Hancock building in Chicago. And I said, good, good month. So I got into the building business. Yeah, right. Still naive. Still uh, not connecting with people. Still um, inventing my way out of potentially catastrophic situations. And um, unfortunately, I got in business with a partner who was a crook. He wasn't a nasty crook. He just um, <clears throat> forged his wife's signature, his ex-wife's signatures on real estate documents to get money um, for the building business. Mm, I see. And I borrowed money to get into business with him. And I started expanding the business. Pretty soon we had four subdivisions, a garden apartment project, and the basis of a planned city underway with no money, basically, bootstrapping all the way. I got into bootstrapping entrepreneurship that way. And unfortunately, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, the real estate market crashes about every 10 to 15 years. Not regularly. The cycle length varies from uh, decade to decade. And um, it crashed, and I went bankrupt. That's a very nasty thing. It's Mm -hmm. really nasty having somebody come and pound a notice from the sheriff on the door of your house. They have to get out because they're selling it. Mm -hmm. And my relationship with my wife never recovered from that. We got a nice apartment. Um, we had by then two kids, two daughters, wonderful kids. Uh, couldn't connect with them either. Um, it was like, can you imagine having a kid and you want to just grab them and hold them and fill them with your loving and not be able to do that? 
That's what the Alzheimer's did. So um, I was pretty depressed by the bankruptcy, the loss of everything. I didn't have any place to go. My wife one day said to me, you're good for nothing. Get out. I got in my car. I drove out to one of the projects. There were a lot of pills and tried to kill myself. That was good and bad. The bad was society doesn't like people at that time who tried to commit suicide. The good was I met God. I was clinically dead for eight minutes. I met God, and everything started to change when I came out of it. Um, I was not the greatest person in the world connecting with people, but I could connect with people. I could connect with my kids. I could um, do business in a more logical fashion. I needed a job. I used what became cybernetic transposition to get me a job with a fellow named Jack Rabinow, who was the most prolific, or should I say successful, inventor in the world at that time. For example, if you're old enough, you'll remember that the clocks in cars went click every once in a while. They were electromechanical. Jack invented that. He got one cent for every car in the world. Uh, He invented the bomb site that won the Second World War and so forth. I said to Jack, how do you invent? He said, I kind of stand on my hands upside down look at the world in a different way, see what other people can't see. And then when I tell them what I saw, they say, why didn't I see it? And he said, that's because they didn't look at the world the right way. Aha! Uh-huh. That was another clue. Anyway, um, Jack's company, strangely enough, uh, was making optical character recognition systems. I didn't know that when I applied for the job. Um, But that was the same thing my advisor at MIT had done. So I fit in pretty well with Jack. And these things were gizmos that cost 200000 to several million dollars. And I said, I know how to make a cheap one that we can sell for 50000 So I got together a group team, and then I used a technique that evolved into cybernetic transposition to see the person who had put up the $2.5 million I needed for it. I never met this person. Uh, when I say see, I didn't have a mental picture of them. But I focused in on there must be a person. It took me a better part of a day. I got a name. I'd heard it once. 
it was a company manufacturing $2 million optical character recognition gizmos. I called him on the CEO of the company, public company, on a Saturday. I got through to him, made my pitch. 15 minutes later, he said to me, hold on for an hour. I'm going to get my executive VP to call you. I'm interested. 45 minutes later, he called. We arranged an appointment the next Monday. That's two days. And um, we met my attorney's office in Washington, D.C. We bust around with the structure and so forth. We signed a little one-day-up-page agreement. And on the fifth day, I had my $2.5 million in the bank account. So another venture, mm-hmm. uh, which we eventually sold to the investing, investing company, didn't make a tremendous amount of money. It didn't like Silicon Valley now. If you could get a million dollars for a company, you were really big time. So we got something like that for the company. And I said, what am I going to do now? And I have to earn a living. So I went down into the basement of my apartment where I had an office. And I used what was becoming more and more formalized into cybernetic transposition. <clears throat> And wrote down a list of the characteristic things I want. I wanted to work with entrepreneurial people. I wanted to have freedom to do things I wanted. I wanted to have a source of payment that could be relied on and so forth. That night, uh, uh, my wife had some people over for dinner I didn't know. And it was a husband and wife couple. And he was telling me about the contract he'd just gotten from the government, a basic ordering agreement, um, which means they give him a block of money and he allocates it uh, to the intended purpose. The purpose was to help minorities build entrepreneurial businesses. And he said, would you like to work for me on this? I said, I'll work as an independent, not for you, but under the contract, he said, great. I spent the next few years doing that. One of the ventures I really liked, and they were all successful, um, was in Roanoke, Virginia. Um, there is a so-called community development corporation also funded by the government to help build local jobs. And the government sent me a request to go down there and figure out why the venture they wanted to build couldn't work and cancel it. Well, I went down there And the venture they wanted to build was to build complex electrical wiring harnesses for jet engines and um, trucks, big trucks, 
um, staffed by unwed welfare mothers with kids in the home. Now, everybody else said, you're crazy. You can't build a business with these misfits. And I said, let me talk to them. So I talked to a few of them, and one of them had a really good entrepreneurial personality. There is a set of 15 characteristics that make a successful entrepreneur. I had realized that when I, uh, as part of my doctoral thesis, I had done a study of the decision-making of venture capitalists, the unconscious decision-making. And this woman had all of them. So I said to her, hey, you're a hotshot. Find 10 more like you. And she did. And now we had a core of 10 potential entrepreneurs because a personality is a key thing in entrepreneurship. And um, <clears throat> I told them, okay, each of you get 10 more that are as close to your personality as you can find. So now we had 100 people that had some degree of entrepreneurial personality. And they, you know, black, unwed, welfare mothers. Mm-hmm. So uh, I needed... In those days, you needed a man to be the face of the company, unfortunately. But that's the way it was. And so I went looking for a man from the community, and I found a guy running a gas station who had been a lieutenant in the Air Force, and all he could get. In Roanoke, Virginia, was a job running a gas station. I said to him, hey, Ralph, you want to run a company? He said, sounds interesting. I said, I'll bet in the military you got very good at looking white when you needed to and looking black when you wanted to. He said, you betcha. I am an ace at that. So I said, well, here's the job. You're going to be the sales front for this new company making these complex wiring harnesses. And you're going to approach Fortune 500 companies and Fortune 1000 companies that are trying to find ways to show or to look like they're supporting minorities. He said, oh, I know that kind of field. And I said, okay, let's go for it. So he went out and he came back with some specs. I had an electrical engineer and we looked at him and put together a way for our workforce to build these very complex gizmos. And he went back to them and said, we can can do it. Here's the price. 
They hide a little bit. And we built it a good profit margin. We got the contract. Now, I was down there once a month for three days. When I say we, I'm just saying we in the sense of ownership that I felt for this terrific group of ladies and Ralph. And in fact, we built up the company so it was profitable in nine months, which is a ridiculously short time for an industrial venture. And um, by the time I finished with them after two years, they had won three best supplier awards from Fortune 500s and were firmly in place. That was the kind of thing I did for a period of time. I did one up in South Bronx where the Fort Apache, where the cops locked themselves in the police station at night. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we needed entrepreneurs to take over businesses that had been built by Jewish entrepreneurs whose kids didn't want to go in South Bronx. Where do you find entrepreneurs in South Bronx? Drug dealers. They have to be really good entrepreneurs or they'd be pretty soon dead. So I meet with a drug dealer, which... There was also a a community development corporation. They're a connector of the community. They put me in touch. And I say, look, I got a pitch for you. You know as well as I do, if you keep doing what you're doing in five years, you'll either end up in jail for a long time or you'll be dead. And they quickly agreed that that was probably the case. I said, I would like to take your talents and help you shape them into running an existing company. Now, you won't make as much money in the short term as dealing drugs, but in the long term, you can make a good deal. It's safe. You can build a family. You can move into the mainstream. You want that? And I got enough of them. And we built up the these companies with again people that most people would say no 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 they're the dregs of society. Um I believe there is a pearl of wonderfulness in every person I meet. And my job is to help them bring that out. That's amazing. So how can someone use the CT to get lots of money um, for anything fast? How can they use that? Uh, very, it's rather easy. Um, the way you do, the way CT works is you're consciously managing your unconscious mind. Your unconscious mind does all the doing in your life. The conscious mind is kind of like an observer, a video screen. Let me give you an example. You probably don't remember when you learned to read, but it took, in total, about four years, maybe five. And you had to learn 
all sorts of things. Had to learn language. Had to understand, learn that some sounds had a significance about person, a thing, an action, whatever. You then had to learn that these squiggles on paper, some of those were meaningful, and they were called letters. And then you had to learn that certain combinations of letters correlated with the words that you verbally knew, and so forth. A very complex process, really. If you watch a kid learning to read, as I get a chance to do because my wife runs a preschool, um, it's really an astoundingly challenging thing, more difficult than they ever do later in their life. Now, nowadays, you look at a book, open a book, look at a page, and you know what it means. It's automatic because during all that learning cycle, you build a lot of unconscious habit patterns that work automatically from a conscious point of view. You don't know how you read. You just look at it, you know what it means. Well, that's the same thing that goes on when you drive. Remember when you first learned to drive a car? Yes. It was very difficult. You consciously had to grit your teeth and do every little thing. Now, you drive a car, you don't pay attention to the mechanics at all, usually. And that's because you have all these unconscious habit patterns. Now, the three things you have to do to achieve a seemingly impossible objective. In concept, they're really simple. First, you have to create a target in your unconscious mind of what you want to achieve. Let's say um, one over four X state for the full effect of support of my success team. I will have done whatever is necessary and appropriate to have generated $100,000. I'll do this in ways that are for the highest good of me and of all concerned. Now, if that objective is logically correct in sense, you consciously want it, really. Seems like something that would be right for you, even if you have no idea how to do it. And if it is unconsciously right, meaning intuitively, it feels like you can do it, then you've got a target. The second thing you have to do is prioritize the target. Your unconscious is running millions of things at once, all the processes of your body and all the things that you do. But you have to make sure that your target stands out above all of those. And that I call prioritization. The third thing you have to do is to resolve the unconscious habit patterns that would otherwise prevent you from reaching the target. What kind of, what are those? Well, like, I can't do it. 
I don't know how to do it. It's taking too long. I'm confused. I don't understand. I don't have the money I need. I don't have the skills I need. Those are all self-defeating unconscious habit patterns that you learn sometime in your life. I have a process where you can turn those into self-supporting habit unconscious habit patterns. For example, if your unconscious self-defeating habit pattern is, I can't understand, you can quickly and permanently turn that into, oh, I understand immediately. Look at something, you understand it. Um, um, And so forth. So once you have cleared those roadblocks out of the way, then you let your unconscious go to work and seemingly magically the objective you have set comes to fruition. People often say, seemed like magic or uh, have an application to lose lots of weight easily and easily keep it on. And people write to me and they say, the the weight melted off me like magic. I didn't have to go to the gym. I didn't have to starve myself, et cetera, et cetera. For example, I lost 105 pounds six years ago um, because I felt it wasn't healthy for me. And I did that in three months during that period of time. Never felt overly hungry. Never felt like I couldn't or shouldn't eat something. Um, and for six years, despite the fact I'm a great cook and I pick out on a weekend, my weight is still at that set point. Um, 148 and a half pounds. And if I really pick out on a weekend, I gain two or three pounds, and by Wednesday of the next week, I'm back on my set point, still eating whatever I want. Um, once you have engaged your unconscious by effectively doing the three things I described, set the target, prioritize and resolve the blockers, you seemingly automatically achieve your objective. In my online coaching program where I get good statistics, over the past 10 years, 100% of the participants who did at least most of the assigned work achieved their first seemingly impossible objective on their first try. So that's how you do it. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, it does. So let's talk about your book. It's coming out um, soon, right? It's already out. It's on Amazon. It'll come out in the bookstores. It's scheduled for the end of April. Okay. So the title is called Make Your Life a 10? Right, make your life a 10. And it's really basically 
what I described, step-by-step instructions with explanations, lots of examples, but it has something I haven't yet described, which is critically important. First thing you do, or almost first thing you do, is make what I call a wish list. You focus on the center of your chest, and you say, where your unconscious pays a lot of attention, and you say, what happened today? So something automatically pops into your conscious mind. You already got it, right? Mm-hmm. Abby? Yes, I'm here, right. I said, mm-hmm. It's okay. true. So now... What you do is you rate that something on a one to 10 scale. 10 means this is the way I'd always like things to be in this situation. When mm-hmm. it's a pits, I don't ever want that. If it's a 10, great. If it's less than a 10, then you use your marvelous skill of hindsight. Um, may not have ever thought of it as a marvelous skill, but start now. They give it that way. And you change in your imagination what happened to a version of the same thing that would be a 10 for you, the way you would have liked things to be in that situation. I call that a perfect alternative. When you get up or you rate it 10, you write it down and cross out the as-is experience. And you do that, when you get through, you end up with a list. For most people, it's 8 to 14 items covering the whole past year. And that's your wish list. They're all tens. The way, if your life was the way your wish list said, you'd have a 10-level life. Mm. And you so, so you're saying you should write it down? Yeah, um, I told you how to write it down. There's a little format okay. in the book. But you write it down. You don't need any form. You'd write down first the as is, what really happened. You write down a couple of sentences. You write down your rating of how perfect that is. If it's a 10, you just say or circle what you wrote. If it's less than a 10, you write down, you create an imaginary perfect version of what happened. And you write that down with the heading perfect alternative and your rating of 10, and you circle that. Okay. That's a good thing. Yeah. So you do that, you say to your unconscious, what else happened today? And you come up with another experience that's either pretty redundant with the first thing, or it's different. If it's different, then you go through the same process I just described. Mm-hmm. You do that, and you find typically <clears throat> you get maybe six or seven items non-redundant items you may come up with versions of the same thing you ignore them but you come up with 
six or seven non-redundant items that either as is or as a perfect alternative are 10 on your piece of paper. Then you go to yesterday and do the same thing. Then you go to last week and do the same thing. Then you say to your unconscious by focusing on your heart chakra, any other experiences I should look at, and it'll pop up. It'll either say no, or it'll pop up something else for you to look at. You keep doing that till there are no more. And you usually end up with 8 to 14. <clears throat> That's based on 100,000 people I've trained in this. Now, that's a roadmap to making your life a 10. So mm-hmm. then I teach you how to take the experiences that were less than a 10. In some cases, they just reflect self-defeating unconscious habit patterns. Like, I was exhausted when I got home from work today. I feel like I wasted my day. That's a self-defeating unconscious habit pattern. You can change that into, uh, when I get home, got home, I felt filled with energy. I was really pleased what I did today and so on. And when you change that in your unconscious, your unconscious automatically express the new version. Now, fatigue is a self-defeating unconscious habit pattern. Let me explain that to you. Have you ever had the experience of being really tired and you get home or you meet some friend and they say, hey, we're going out to this great movie. Mm-hmm. And they tell you about it, you get all excited. Suddenly your fatigue goes away and you're up, you jump in the car, you go to the movie, and you see it. You're, there wasn't a real physical fatigue. Mm-hmm. It was a self-defeating unconscious habit pattern that made you feel fatigue. And mm-hmm. you can change that. It takes about half an hour to permanently change that. I teach that in the book and so forth. So the book teaches everything you need to know to take your wish list and make your reality. And that's attend life. That's amazing. So before you we go, is there anything else you would like to tell the listeners? Yeah, I hope they do it. I mean, my purpose in the world is now to help people make their lives a paradise on earth. I had a book out. I sold $5 million worth at profit-wise called How to Get Lots of Money for Anything Fast, which uses CT. And uh, I sold it for $97 a piece on the web. Uh, sold almost 60,000 copies. And then I said, no, nah, I want to do something for lots more people. So 
This new book only costs 18 bucks on Amazon. I'll probably reduce the price more. It includes um, an audiobook version. It includes um, audio guidance segments that learn you from, lead you through learning some of the processes. It includes 14 uh, ebooks that tell you how to do certain things, like completing all your work in half the time with better results and so forth. Um, and it is a great tool. It's a good or easy read and easy to implement. So I would hope lots of your listeners take advantage of this. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on and thank you for sharing your stories and your books and everything with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've enjoyed my time with you. Hope we do it again. Yes, definitely. Big, big thank you to our guest for um, for today. And if you would like to learn more about today's topic, please go on howtosurvivesociety.com. There you can get um, some life skills courses and some merchandise and um, contact me if you would like to be a guest on the show. So thank you so much for tuning in and have yourself a lovely day. Today is a great day to start your own podcast. Whether you're looking for a new marketing channel, have a message you want to share with the world, or just think it would be fun to have your own talk show, podcasting is an easy, inexpensive, and fun way to expand your reach online. Buzzsprout is hands down the easiest and best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more within minutes of finishing your recording. Podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners, and the team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping you succeed. Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout to get their message out to the world. Let's create something great together. So if you ever need help to start your own podcast, reach out to me. And then you know what you can do also? You know, you can follow the link in the show notes, in the show notes that lets Buzzsprout know that I sent you so you can get a $20 Amazon gift card when you sign up for a paid plan. And you can also support the show that way. So, yeah. So if you're looking to start your own podcast, reach out to me. Follow the link under the notes show and you'll be able to sign up and get a $20 Amazon card. Yeah.